Welcome to the Education of a Financial Planner, where we look at the major concepts in financial planning through the lens of two quant investors who are learning the ropes of the planning process and how to help clients achieve their long-term goals. Learn along with us as experienced financial planner Matt Ziegler helps us understand the most important financial planning concepts that impact all of us and how we can apply them to achieve the best outcomes in our financial lives. In each episode, we will work through one major financial planning concept from the ground up and learn how we can apply it in the real world. From retirement to college savings to taxes to estate planning, we will cover a wide range of topics that apply to each of our everyday lives. We hope you will join us in our learning journey. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at the Lydia Capital Management. Matt Ziegler is Managing Director at Sunpoint Investments. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital or Sunpoint Investments. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital or Sunpoint Investments. Today, we're going to talk about a topic that is sort of front, it's been front and center in a lot of investors' minds for probably uh, almost two years now. And that's this idea of inflation and what we're seeing in the markets um, about inflation um, that plays into many different things, obviously interest rates, the cost of borrowing, what the Federal Reserve does, how it impacts sort of spending in the economy, and I guess a whole bunch of things that we're going to, you know, sort of try to tackle this and try to talk through the impact of inflation, what inflation actually is. Think about it from an investing and planning standpoint, Matt, as you sort of work with your clients and we all work with investors trying to you know, help manage their money, grow their wealth and address their concerns um, that they may have and look at risks and opportunities in the market. So, I mean, let, maybe to start, let's go kind of think about a little history here and think back to mid-2020, which is after the COVID crash, you had this massive fiscal stimulus and you started to see inflation starting to rear its head. Now, at that point in time, the smartest people that know probably that you think would know the most about inflation, people at the Federal Reserve, you know, were mostly saying this is a transitory thing. This is not going to be something that's going to sustain. And it's caused by these other uh, these other things, whether it was ma- massive amounts of fiscal stimulus, you had the war in Ukraine, you had a disruption in supply chain issues. So you could kind of make the argument and see why they might be saying that. But, you know, so far, it really hasn't been that way. And then since then, obviously, the Federal Reserve has had a massive interest rate um, increasing cycle to try to bring inflation under control. The, the one sort of other thing I was thinking about preparing for this conversation is, you know, none of us in our careers have seen this type of inflationary regime um, because we've all kind of been in the markets or gotten to the markets you know, whether it was early 2000s, mid 2000s, and really in most of that period of time, there's been there's been various like bouts of inflation in different things. Like maybe you can think about oil or maybe housing, but, you know, on the whole, nothing like the broad based inflation that we're, you know, that we've seen. So I don't know, let's just start with 2020, sort of what was happening there, and then we can get into some of this other stuff. Yeah, and I think what you said about before 2020 is really important and none of us seeing it in our careers because I think it's hard to accept something can happen if you've never seen it before. And, you know, if I think back in my career, like, I mean, you had, it wasn't even we were getting 2% inflation. We were getting less than 2% inflation. We were, the Fed was having trouble maintaining 2% inflation. And I can't remember any time in my career, I don't know if you guys can, where I ever cared about a CPI report. You know, right now I know the exact dates they come out every month, everything about them. Like, I didn't care what is, about the CPI report at all. I don't think I really knew 
exactly how the CPI was calculated and all the intricate details behind the scenes in terms of housing and everything. So it's just amazing. Like when you, when you haven't seen that at all in your career, even if you're a professional, like if you haven't seen it in your career, it's going to be shocking to you when it happens. Even if you're starting to see some signs behind the scenes that it might happen, like it's hard to accept that. I don't know if that was true for you, Matt, as well. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I think either you guys just had him on or you're about to have Colin Roche on the show for something. Yeah, it just came out today. There you go. Go listen to Colin Roche talk. I probably owe Colin Roche a inflation adjusted beer because back in the financial crisis, he was the one who kept explaining to me and I needed to hear it explained a thousand different times, all the things that could and probably wouldn't cause inflation. And the fiscal stimulus that we experienced in the crisis was something unlike we had ever seen. Because if you think back in most of our professional careers from post tech bubble to uh, the, the, the financial crisis, the great financial crisis, like what cash for clunkers, some unemployment benefits getting extended post 2001 to 2003. Like we hadn't ever really seen durable inflation that led to such a spike in the cost of everything. And, uh, how, you know, but, Wage inflation and cost inflation, huge, pivotal, nothing like it in decades. Yeah, that upsets the apple cart a little bit. Well, and I think to both of your points, you know, we weren't seeing it, even though you had the Fed balance sheet go from like a trillion to whatever it was, eight trillion after the COVID thing during that period of time from from 2009 up to 2020, you had the Fed balance sheet expanding significantly. And there was, you know, you would hear about this talk of inflation's coming, inflation's coming, and it wouldn't, it never materialized it. So it was kind of like the boy that cried wolf in the sense that, okay, here we go again. You know, no, it's just all sort of asset price inflation, not necessarily goods and services. And so I think, you know, to, to Jack, the point that you were making, it's like, we hadn't seen it. We had heard a lot about it, but it never really materialized until we had this massive fiscal stimulus that, you know, Matt just brought up. Yeah. And going, going back to Matt's point on Cullen, I mean, Cullen was the person who taught me that, who taught me that, you know, quantitative easing was not going to cause inflation. Um, and so you had a lot of people saying we were going to get inflation, but we didn't. And, you know, he, you, you can read articles by him behind the scenes as to why that is. But like you said, the big shift was putting money in people's pockets, fiscal stimulus. And like you've got all this time where people have been saying there's going to be inflation and there wasn't like you had this perfect combination of you had the thing that is going to cause inflation happening. You had a lot of people saying, oh, they've been wrong about inflation all these times, so they're going to be wrong again. And then it just hit at the right time. And then, then you got this major spike in inflation. Was there anything, in looking back to that period of time, was there anything that jumps out to you guys? And we can always look back with hindsight and say, like, well, we saw this, we heard this, or, and I'm going to bring up some of those points. So I'll admit that I'm guilty of it. But is there, is there anything that jumps out at you as like, wow, this is like a bigger concern than I thought? When you say bigger concern, and I guess you're just baiting me further with this. When you say bigger concern, what was like the press the red alert button? Yeah, well, it was like, was there anything that you saw that you said inflation is going to be here higher or with us longer than than most people think? Is there anything that really stands out at you or anybody that you were listening to at the time that you were like, you know what? I think they're, yeah, this is going to be more problematic than a lot of investors are prepared for. I want to say, because this comes out in the financial planning framework and it does connect to economic realities, so we can point to this, but it's it's as psychological as it is logical. And I, I probably had a version of this conversation a million times over the years. 
And it usually comes up when we're talking about, when we're talking about housing and it's sometimes it's in a big fancy city or like in a vacation place. And other times it's just in the middle of nowhere. And somebody's like thinking about the property valuation on the house in Texas or Georgia or somewhere where like no, no multi multimillionaires are probably moving, but they're trying to get a hand on this thing. And we always talk about how the housing market in any area is basically a function of wages and access to capital. So where are mortgage rates? How much money is like on the table that somebody could borrow to do something? And what's the health and the amount of wages that are available to buy these houses? And the reality is when interest rates fall, but wages kind of go nowhere, you can buy more house because interest rates are down. But until interest rates are down and wages are going up, i.e. the beginning of COVID, you don't really have something that should cause a permanent shift or a sharp shift in the price of some underlying kind of fixed good like a house that requires maintenance, requires all those things, which are, by the way, why the prices are bound to wages and access to capital. Because you, you guys own homes. They're, they're fun ongoing expenses, aren't they? <laughs> they definitely are. So... The access to capital and the direction of wages are probably, I think it bears out in the data and it bears out in experience and talking to people and planning around this stuff. Like if you show me a neighborhood and you say all the doctors are moving into town and uh, mortgage rates are still low or whatever else, it's like, yeah, that these property values are probably going to be pushed up. Show me the vacation town. Say there's millionaires and billionaires who want to live there and rates are at record lows. I'll tell you the values are going up. Inflation's coming and it's probably sticky until one part or both parts of that trend reverse. And that that's your moment. That's your scary moment. To frame my dog, who is now trying to climb up my back behind me, there's thunder outside. And that's a scary moment. And that's kind of like the piece we saw at the beginning of COVID. Wages went up, rates went down, all of a sudden asset prices in places that I had no business going bananas went bananas. And if my dog makes an appearance on the podcast, you'll know why. <laughs> Just... Yeah. So I, I think taking a step back to one of the challenges with inflation is even figuring out what it is. Like people think there's, oh, here's what inflation is. Well, the reality is, first of all, let's start with the actual measures. You know, we've got CPI, we've got core CPI, we've got PCE, we've got core PCE. Then we've got like super core and super core X housing. And like, there, there's so many measures of inflation and what goes into that is different than what every person experiences. And, and I think that's the more important point is that every single person has a series of things in their lives that are impacted by inflation. You know, they, they might own a house, they buy certain goods, they buy a certain basket of goods, like someone who is, has a lot of money buys a different basket of goods than somebody who doesn't have a lot of money. And all of those people have different inflation rates. And so that's one of the hard things I think for people to grasp is like you see the CPI report and oh, it's 4.2% or something like that. And it's like, well, that's inflation. Well, that, that inflation can be, for some people, that, that's a really good thing, you know, because they have assets that are going up because of the inflation. For some other people who have purely things they're buying, you know, or are buying the things that are going up the most, it's, it's a terrible thing. And so it's really important to think about the concept. I think that inflation is very personal. I think yeah, the I, definition, the, the definition and the explanation of inflation in that way is so important. And I like to bring people home to that basket of goods thing because that gets thrown around everywhere. And it's like, yeah, th okay, think about basket of goods. Think about supermarket sweep or think about just if all three of us walk into a grocery store tomorrow and we all start throwing stuff into our basket, we're going to have stuff with rhymes, but like we all might buy three different types of bread. Or maybe, you know, Justin doesn't eat bread in his pristine shape. And uh, Jack and Matt have all like the cheese and ice cream piled up. 
Um, but it's like your basket of goods is going to look different. Even if we're shopping at the same store, even if we're living through life, our, our allotment to housing costs, our allotment to our wages, our allotment to the types of vehicles we drive and the service and the options available. These are all like variables. And every one of those academic measurements is just that it's just an academic measurement. Inflation always has to be personal because what ends up in your basket of goods and services is going to be, it's going to rhyme with, but it's going to be different from even your closest neighbor. You know, I remember listening to Jeremy Siegel and he was, you know, pounding the table on the M2 money supply and how that had exploded during, uh, during COVID and how eventually that money was going to come out into goods and services. And he was effectively right. But then I also remember looking at the container ships in LA and then just like piling up and saying, how in the world is this not going to affect prices if these goods are not getting out to people? And then I remember talking to my mom who's on social security and is asking me, how am I going to afford groceries that have gone up by 20%, gas prices that are higher, energy prices that are... So to me, to the point about being personal is it really resonated because it made me think about you know, someone that's on a fixed income that is in retirement, that doesn't have necessarily a job that's, you know, has the ability to make more money. Of course, she, go out, she could go out and get a job. But that's when it really like kind of struck home. And I was like, wow, this is, this is actually a problem and concern for many people. Now, on the back end of that, Social Security has been adjusted significantly higher. So she's been a beneficiary of those higher Social Security payments, whether or not they've made up for the increased inflation. I don't know, but I'm just kind of driving home the point that it is certainly personal for everyone. Personal doesn't always kick up. And like, I just, I pulled this up just because this is just worth saying out loud. So like we go through the financial crisis, 2009 here, let's, let's play this, this extra super fun, interesting game. Uh, 2009, what's the COLA for social security? So at uh, two, two percent, uh, one and a half percent or something. Right. COLA means cost of living adjustment. And this is the the uh, inflation index adjusted amount on everybody who receives uh, social security, this is the amount they get. And this is a huge consideration in financial planning with like the differences in the inflation adjustment. If you take social security early at your full retirement age or later, and that's a whole other conversation. So wait, you guessed 2%? Not my guess. I would say one six or something. All right, all right, 2009, zero. Okay, 2010, take another guess. I won't do every single year, I promise, but. 2010, what was the cost of living adjustment for well, social security? I was the over, so I don't know, Jack. One, two, maybe? Or, yeah. It's got to go up at some point, right? Zero. <laughs> <laughs> again, again, two <laughs> years in a row. I remember this because I was doing financial plans for people. And I just remember like, you guys keep putting like three and like cash is supposed <laughs> to pay five in these capital yeah. market assumptions to build these portfolios and run these assumptions. Uh, CPI... And cost of living adjustments on social security is zero. Are, are we sure, guys? This was also why the financial crisis is one of the greatest things that ever happened in my career because I realized how much of this stuff is just bull BS and they're making it up as they go along. All right, so 2011, spoiler, you finally get an uptick, 3.6%. But again, first time in three years you got a cola. So think back to your mom for a second, Justin. Like zero, zero, three point six. Now, Flash forward 2015. That's the next year. We go back down to zero. No cola. 2016, 0.3. Now, 17, 18, 19, we actually saw some inflation. This was the big interest rate panic. 
2.0, 2.8, 1.6, respectively. And then it takes us to 2021. And do you guys remember, do you know, approximately the 2021 and I 2022 was, colas? Wasn't, was it 8.3? I'm going to say like 8% or something or 8.3 in, in the vicinity. Yeah, 2021, 5.9%, okay. 2022, okay. 8.7%. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And what's crazy is like that 8.7, uh, I'm doing deep, deep research of whatever uh, SSA.gov site that I'm on right now. Like we got to go back to the late 70s, early 80s to see anything like that kind of cola. In fact, in 1976, it was 6.4. Um, and you don't get those double digit increases except for 80 and 81, really. So the cola drives consumption because your mom's stressed because she's like, how am I supposed to drive buy these groceries when the price went up? Because her basket of goods and services, the raise outstripped her income, her resources, everything else, right? Like that's the stress she bore. Yes, exactly. Correct. Yeah. So social security is super important and other things with colas are super important because that's the only way people catch up. The further behind they are, back to the wages versus access of capital. So it's like income maybe and access to capital. Like, is your mom going to go out and borrow a bunch of money to pay for groceries? I, I hope not, right? <laughs> me too, because I don't want her coming to me for the money. <laughs> <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> well, I'm sure I'll, I'll be there this for you. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. We'll do the Tupac Mama song somewhere at the end for you. You can get down. Um, so it's like the whole, this whole thing of, Inflation is personal. The things you have access to and how it's adjusted for inflation doesn't always rhyme with your personal reality. And like understanding the mechanisms behind each, that's a huge point in financial planning. And it's a huge point in understanding for each person because CPI tells you a part of the story, but only rhymes with your situation. And these colas, man, and they feel good when they get, you get the raise, but just like at work, it feels good when you get the raise. The question is like, know, how much more are you doing or how much less is it buying? Yeah, and I think the other point to keep in mind is even if inflation wasn't personal, this, this stuff can't be measured that well. So even if they've got the basket perfect of, of what's in that CPI basket, and even if they, you know, even if that ref- reflects what every person buys, they still can't measure it. And, you know, housing is the best example of that. Like, you know, you'll see housing lags big time, you know, because if you think about it, some people own houses, some people rent houses. Like, how, how do you even figure out, like, how to include housing, you know, in CPI? And we're not going to get into the the crazy details of how they do it, but it's just important to know that that's, that's got a serious lag to it. So you had this, we're still seeing now in the CPI numbers, a significant spike in housing that occurred a while ago. And now the expectation is housing is going to pretty soon turn and be a drag on CPI and pull it down. But in the real world, housing is actually going up again now. So you've got this lagged effect where like you have to figure out like what's going on now versus what's going on in the CPI. And so it's just important to know that like, even if the CPI basket is right, it's not a complete reflection of how these prices are changing because things are very hard to measure. Measuring inside your basket then becomes one of the most important things you could do to understand which assets, which resources are careening in which directions that you care about. Because the other reality, like with a house, is if you own a house, you probably, I'm not saying you don't care. It's a part of your net worth and there's lots of reasons you have to care. But if you're not looking to buy or sell a house, the amount of work you need to do about thinking about like the inflation and the CPI impact on your house is very low. If you're trying to buy a house or if you know you need to sell to downside or to raise a family or something like this, it starts to matter. And that's where like inflation carries over into asset classes and how we all think about this stuff, right? 
Yeah, that's right. And, and I think, you know, as, as we carry it into asset classes, I think there's one principle that's the most important principle to keep in mind. And, that, and that this is a principle that works in every aspect of investing, not just inflation. And it comes down to everything is about expectations relative to reality. So from Justin's question earlier about like when it hit me that inflation was going to be worse than expected, you know, the answer was really never because I was looking at the consensus at the time of what people thought. And, you know, people kind of came in the same way I came. Like they thought inflation was going to rise up and you had an expectation of higher inflation. And, you know, that that kept rising. And then at a certain point, you know, it goes down. But the key is like in investing, if you're going to use inflation to your advantage in investing, you've got to do two different things. And we'll talk about the second later. But the first is you have to have a very a different opinion on inflation relative to the expectations that are in the market. So we still have decently high inflation right now, but a lot of your assets that you would expect to do well in high inflation have getting killed this year, like commodities, et cetera. And the reason is because inflation has been coming down below expectations. So you know we got to a point where inflation exceeded expectations by a lot, and now it's probably come down more than expectations. And you know as we sit here today, the question to ask yourself if you're going to put inflation in an investing strategy is, what do I know relative to those expectations? Like, do, do I know it's going to be lower? Do I know it's going to be higher? And do I have an intelligent way to come up with a system to try to figure that out? Because if you don't, it's probably not that useful on an investing front, even though we're going to talk about, you know, the asset classes that do well in periods of inflation. So the Richmond Fed, I, in pre preparing for this conversation, the Richmond Fed published a article from 2021, and it was, the title was Forecasting Inflation. And the Fed really uses two different types of, I think this is interesting, they use two different types of, I guess, models or approaches when trying to um, predict inflation expectations. And the first is a model-driven approach. So it's called signal extraction, where they're basically looking at all these inputs, as we've just discussed, that are super hard to really get accurate and estimate and figure out what to do with them. But it's things like the, the CP... Um, yeah, the CPI, the, the PPI, and looking at those inputs and trying to look at what's a signal and what's noise and trying to use models. But they say in this article that, the, that that's very hard in and of itself. It's not accurate a lot of the times. And then there's also this approach called wisdom of crowds, which is like business surveys or surveys of businesses and CEOs about you know the future prices in 12 months. But they also point out that those aren't accurate a lot of times either. And particularly during regime changes, these models have a very, very tough time in terms of having any degree of accuracy. So, you know, that's how the Fed approaches it. And that's one way they approach it at least. And, but to their point is that, you know, these things are far from perfect and they're very sophisticated in some ways and they're taking different approaches, but it just shows how hard estimating inflation expectations actually are. Not only is it so hard, but I think we have to also just talk for a second about the whole like relative versus absolute part of the calculation, because I think this is something that people often get tied up with. And I'm I'm pulling up this thing because I think he just said it so well. Uh, I've I've got a post done. I've got a very non-snarkily applied post: how to live, how to lie with statistics, 2022 inflation edition um, that I wrote middle of last year, and. Inside of that, it's this idea that when the inflation rate is low and we're trying to understand this, we're always doing an absolute and a relative measurement. And Nick Majuli, I think I have quoted here as saying like, the way to think about it is that if you weighed a 200 pound, if you weighed 200 pounds a year ago, but today you weigh 270 pounds, your weight has gone up by eight and a half percent over the past year. 
Now, if you weighed 217 pounds last month and you still weigh 217 pounds this month, that's a 0% monthly change. So kind of like connecting the two points you both just made and uh, Jack about the expectations. If you want to believe, if you want somebody to believe that inflation is high or the expectation, you're going to tell them the eight and a half percent number. You want to see like the rate of change between those two parts. And if you want somebody to believe that inflation is falling, you tell them the zero percent because you're saying we're just measuring over the last month and we're not measuring it. We're measuring against itself, not on a relative basis for the price rise. So when we think about that and we think about the difficulty of extrapolating inflation forward. And we can look at a bunch of different surveys to see this, but just I pulled up the um, Jim Bianco shared the Cleveland Fed's now cast, which is one of the ways. And this gets into that model problem. So it's like right now, inflation tracking around 3%. If the month over month CPI prints and then the year over year CPI comes in at zero for the rest of the year, we're basically going to end with a CPI or an inflation rate exactly where we are today because of the way the thing is calculated. And like, that's kind of a weird head scratcher of a thing for the rate of change. Uh, likewise, if we follow a different path, that could get totally blown out of proportion and then at various degrees, change the expectations on all the asset classes and all the things that we're trying to do. It's such a hard to use and such a noisy data set that you can only figure any of this out if you're willing to drill all the way in. How do you guys think about this with like investing as it ties back to like those expectations and this absolute relative basis of how we even describe these wonky numbers. Yeah. Well, the point you just made is really important because to, to be honest, those year over year inflation numbers that you always see in the media, they're complete garbage and they're especially garbage in a period where it's changing a lot. And so like, right. I, I tend to look more at like three month annualized, something like that, because what you can have is, you know, if you think about like what we've gone through in inflation, like think about a year ago and what we were going through inflation and think about how relevant that is to today, given all the changes that are happening. So you can have accelerating or decelerating inflation. You know, we were printing really, really high year over year numbers for a while here where it was very clear that num that inflation was the inflation rate was going down. And, you know, if you just look at the media and said 8.2% or 7.1%, you know, you didn't you didn't see that what was going on in the data. So like to me, I tend to look more at the shorter term, like three month annualized, six month annualized type of stuff you know, to try to figure out what's actually going on, because you're right. I mean, you can take that data set and you can make whatever case you want to make. You want to make high inflation, accelerating, I mean, you can make all kinds of different cases. And it's really important to know what exactly what you're looking at. It's really easy to torture these numbers. And I guess hopefully I was clear enough and you were just way clearer. So thank you for, thank you for clarifying my point. Like, it's really easy to take these numbers and torture them to tell the story you want to take. So when you see people in the media or in headlines telling the inflation story, understand how easy it is to find whatever story you want to see in these numbers and start to extrapolate it out. Really, really powerful and really big deal for us when we're professionals, meaning us, building portfolios and building this into plans. And let me just give one more maybe example. You know, if a loaf of bread cost a dollar in 2020, and then in 2021, that same loaf of bread cost a dollar 10 cents, that's 10% price increase on that loaf of bread. If that loaf of bread now costs $1.13, well, that's us in a 3% increase on that loaf of bread. But the loaf of bread is still 13% higher than you were paying in 2020. So the point is, is that, you know, and I think my sense of it, and then we can get into the asset classes, is a lot of consumers view inflation as still very high 
because prices to where they were relative to, you know, a year or two ago, prices are significantly higher across a number of things. You know, you go to the grocery store, you go out to eat your electric bill, whatever you want to say. Gas is even on the uptick now with the price of oil. So I, I just think that, you know, that, 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 you know, your point, Matt, is a very, very good one. And it's like you lose that level set of price increase higher sort of gets lost as you go further and further out. But I don't feel like it happened so abruptly that I still feel like at least in, in people's minds right now, you know, a lot of people think inflation is still very high and problematic for that. And think about your mom on the social security. Like if those changes happen, but the COLA hasn't taken place on social security yet or on your fixed income, you feel and experience this differently because the price of bread may have gone up, but your social security number hasn't kicked in or whatever mix of your income hasn't adjusted for that cost differential, but maybe it has for somebody else. Yeah, I think Justin's point is so important though, because prices, you know, inflation abating does not mean prices come down. And, you know, so many people think right. that, you know, they're like, these prices are so elevated, you know, once inflation abates, my prices are going to come down. Like, that's not the way it works. Like the rate of change slows, but they keep going up. And, you know, unless we get some sort of deflationary crisis or something. So, you know, that that's really hard for, I think, people to wrap their arms around. Like, I think a lot of people who, who don't understand inflation that well think, well, when, when inflation comes down, well, now the price of, you know, the loaf of bread or the eggs or whatever is going to come down. And, you know, that's not the way it works really in the real world. Let's just uh, work through the major asset classes and how inflation affects these. And let's just all kind of riff and comment on this. So let's start with, let's start with stocks. I mean, we're all heavily invested in stocks. We have clients that are heavily invested in stocks. What do we think about inflation and equity prices? We can kind of talk. Yeah, well, really um, I mean, I think about it in two different ways. So I, I think about it in a short-term way and I think about it in a long-term way. I mean, obviously going back to the idea of expectations, unexpected rises in inflation in the short term are not good for stocks. Um, and you saw that in 2022. But in the long term, you know, equities are actually a pretty decent, you know, inflation hedge. You know, a lot of companies will be able to raise their prices along with inflation. You know, stocks are not the worst place to be. Um, you know, it, certainly bonds probably are, which we'll get to in a second. But, you know, in, in terms of inflation, like being high in the short term, probably bad for stocks, but in the long term, probably not as bad as people think. I, I always go back to this idea of inflation down, rates down, all things related to stocks. Like that's the difference between us having a repeat of the roaring 20s where growth and investing and optimism is all high versus if inflation is stubborn or rates are stubborn or whatever else, that favors physical assets. And so then we would call that the tangible 20s and probably have spent, probably spent the last three or if not four years talking about these two themes playing out as we wrestle with inflation, especially post-COVID. Inflation down, rates down for stocks, roaring 20s. We're in that mindset. But if inflation is up or stubborn, if rates are up or stubborn, then favors value, favors tangible asset businesses, and that's the tangible 20s. And that's kind of, that's where I fall on the stock, on the stock side of things with this. Yeah. You yeah know, I think it is probably important to differentiate nominal and real returns here too. Because when, when I was saying inflation, good for stocks, can, they can do well in the long run. It's really a nominal thing. Like the, the return of stocks on a nominal basis can be pretty decent in high inflationary environments because, again, profits are up. But again, the real returns, now I'm subtracting the rate of inflation, which is very high, not as good for stocks. Um, they still might be better than other asset classes, but, you know, it's important. You know, we didn't really think that much in real and nominal returns for so long because we had one point something percent inflation. You know, when you have six, seven percent inflation or four or five percent inflation, you have to think that way more. You have to think more nominal and real returns, you know, against each other. 
and definitely, I mean, if I'm sure it's on most of our, it's definitely on excess returns listeners' minds, but like Aswath Damodaran and all the stuff that he's done on this, I feel like I think about him almost every single day, not just because he wrote the valuation textbook, but also because he's been explaining this for so many years. And it's one of those things that's almost nagging where he's like, at some point this matters and it finally matters. And thank God I've been reading them for all these years that be like, oh, there it is. That's how to think about it on corporate balance sheets, corporate cash flow statements, corporate income statements, because now it's here. So just real quick, O'Shaughnessy, and we'll get the bonds in a minute, but O'Shaughnessy Asset Management, this was like, you know, it was almost 10 years ago or a little bit over 10 years ago, but it's still really, it was really powerful to me. So the title of the piece is Inflation in the U.S. Bond and Stock Markets. And they had basically inflation broken out into five different categories, severe inflation, high inflation, moderate inflation, low inflation, and then deflation. And just the overall summary is stocks do really bad when you have high inflation and deflation. They do below average when you have high inflation or severe inflation, excuse me, they do really bad with severe inflation, really bad with deflation. They do below average with high inflation. And then sort of the sweet spot is this moderate to low inflationary environments. And so, you know, I encourage you guys, we'll actually try to put a link to this um, in the show notes. It is a PDF. So when you get the link, you'll have to download it. But I've always found this very valuable because it looks at, you know, over a hundred years of, of data and the markets. Tools like that, super useful. I think most people who are building and modeling out portfolios are using various types of software or other tools to help think about what's the forward-looking expectation and what are these scenarios and regimes to play out in portfolio construction to understand where we are against the historical averages. And if we want to be different, we got to have a good reason for why we want to differentiate uh, in how we're expressing that in the portfolios. They have bond returns in here too. And by the way, I misspoke there. Stocks actually do really well during deflationary times. I was going to um, ask and, about that. And, okay. and so do bonds. So yeah, that was my that was my mistake. Um, and But bonds, simil- they carry a similar sort of return in the sense of when you have severe inflation and high inflation, you obviously get very bad bond returns because those are periods when rates are, are probably going up. Let's just flush that out real quick. So So what happens with bonds? When we have high inflation, interest rates go up and... Why do bonds go down? Well, do the seesaw, first... Jack. Do the seesaw. Yeah. <laughs> well, first of all, I mean, I, if I've got a bond, if I let's just say to make it easy, let's just say I own like an individual bond. I mean, I, I've got a promise that I'm going to receive these coupon payments over time. Well, you know, in an inflationary environment, those coupon payments are worth less to me than they were. But also, you know, if it, if rates go up, now I've got alternatives in terms of other bonds I can be buying with higher rates. The value of my bond is going to go down. Um, you know, the, the present value of my bond is less. So inflation is the absolute worst for bonds. I mean, there's, there's no scenario, and you, you can tell what the O'Shaughnessy paper said, but you know, the asset class you're going to see get hit the worst you know, in an inflationary period. And we saw this in 2022 because relative to like, what a bad bear market would look like in stocks, 2022 wasn't that bad. But for bonds, I mean, we were seeing like historic level of decline. So when you get that severe unexpected inflation, it's, it's, it's the worst for bonds event versus anything else. What about other asset classes like gold and commodities here? Yeah, those are tougher. Um, you know, first of all, commodities is not that tough. You know, if, if there's one asset class that if you, again, we have to go back to the thing of expectations versus reality because it's not just, oh, there's high inflation, I should buy commodities. And we learned that this year because commodities haven't done that well and we've had high inflation, but it was decelerating and it was decelerating more than people thought. But in general, if I knew in advance that there was going to be higher accelerating inflation, commodities is the asset class I would want to own over all others. It's the most consistent 
you know, if you look at historical testing and doing well in inflationary environments, gold is not that, um, you know, gold has does well in certain types of inflationary environments, but it doesn't in others. And again, we saw that in 2022, gold did a lot worse than a lot of people thought gold was going to do. So, yeah, I mean, I think commodities are probably the best asset class. But again, going back to the idea of expectations, you have to know something different than the market, because a lot of times you might have a situation where you have high inflation and commodities don't do well because inflation is coming down beyond expectations. And these play out at different time frames, right? It's one of those things like commodities on the early upswing to inflation. That's where a lot of the performance gets lumped in. Like bonds get hit often the hardest because of the reset in interest rates to the way that you just explained it, Jack. And understanding at like what time series these play out as the expectation shift, that becomes a massive part of it. Because like the gold underreaction in like the current piece might also end up showing as gold as a, as a store of value that might get sold in like the short term. Like that's that whole, I always butcher it. What is it? Like a, some amount of gold buys you a good suit over the last bajillion years. What am I trying to say? It's basically gold is an inflation edge is the idea that it will get you a good suit at any point in time. And there's some specific unit of measurement that you can tell how much I care about that statistic by my ability to repeat it. So in the last couple of minutes here, and I think we could you know, continue and we probably will continue to talk about this in the future because it's a very important topic and it hits a lot of different parts of investing and planning and how we think about sort of things. But in terms of um, how we actually think about this in what we do day to day for investors, um, you know, Jack, we build and run investment strategies here for clients. Matt and his team over at some point are doing financial planning and also building investment strategies and thinking about it. But in terms of like specific, you know, moves or specific things we're doing, you know, I don't know if it, if it, you know, our investment processes and the portfolios we're building are long-term investment strategies that, you know, they're meant to be held for multi-year periods. And so the types of stocks that are going to be reflected in there are going to be chosen based on their underlying fundamentals. I do think that the things like the time value of money, having your money be eroded away if you're sitting in cash um, and losing it to, you know, inflation, um, looking for stocks with pricing power, which, you know, show up in consistent profits over long periods of time, um, you know, sort of allocating to value stocks, which we really haven't talked too much about that. And there's some debate with value, but I, I think especially when rates are rising, you know, you might be able to make an example, you might be able to make a point that growth stocks get hit harder than value. So, so those are the things that I sort of think about when I'm thinking about the way our investing system is built and how we're advising clients and how sort of inflation plays into those discussions. Yeah, and you know, to, to your point, you know, at the beginning, yeah, those things are, are all accurate, but in terms of what did we change about our quantitative process due to inflation, the answer is zero. Um, and, and it goes back to what I said before, which is we don't have anything, you know, if we can't predict the future, if it's very hard to figure out, first of all, which asset classes do well in an inflationary environment or which, you know, sub assets, you know, like value stocks do well, and I can't predict inflation, it's very, very hard for me to make any changes to our portfolio. Um, you know, we, we will do things where we overweight value, but it won't be because of inflation. It'll be because of something like value spreads being in the 99th percentile or something like that historically. You know, that's the reason we would add value exposure to our portfolios. It would never be because of inflation. You know, it's consistent too. And I'll, I'll ask Matt about planning, but it's consistent with everyone we've talked to. You know, we've asked this question on our show or portfolio episodes a lot, like Corey Hofstein, a lot of quant guys. And the answer is always the same. You know, we did nothing. 
Um, you know, we, we haven't changed our portfolios at all because of this, but Matt, maybe we got a couple minutes left, but can you talk about like what, what you've changed? Maybe is anything changed about the way you do planning because of this? So at the portfolio level, it's never like inflation is never a single input number that changes an entire portfolio allocation. And I think that's where that rhymes with what you're saying. And I think that rhymes with most other people believe because it ends up showing up in valuations and changing expectations and whatever else. So tactical shifts are never driven by any single variable, let alone inflation, but inflation does show up in all of your assumptions and real return assumptions and everything else. So that's always there. On the financial planning front, inflation, because it's always personal, we do have to map that in sometimes in highly customized ways for people. Uh, a couple with no children who has significant longevity risk in their family might want us to use in conversation a higher amount to inflate cost of in-home care or or facility care on the expectation that in earlier years, what's like what's a really bad cost of care that we have to assume? And we might put our thumb on the scale of those historical base rates for those planning cases where they help bring people peace of mind. We see this a lot of times too uh, with property valuations or things where there is a risk of a higher net worth individuals. We got to think about if they have those three vacation homes or whatever, we got to think about what's the estate tax liability through various regimes if the prices of these properties tracks above average as they historically have in the past. So there's times that inflation and the customization of it for financial planning clients where we put our thumb on the scale, usually to raise it higher, occasionally to take it lower. Somebody's taking way, way less risk or deliberately nobody's burying money in a coffee can in their backyard, but that would be a scenario of thumb on the scale in the other direction. Um, but yeah, on the financial planning side, we try to reflect the personal needs where there's more extreme scenarios that there's a higher awareness from the client that they have to be protective of because that's what good planning is not necessarily planning for the futures that you hope will happen, but making sure you're prepared for the futures that you hope won't happen in a way that you'll look back in time and say like, uh, I'm glad we took that extra step because I mean, we've just seen it too many times The the anecdotal stuff is if you could make a few non-negative trade-off things that you could do today that would take some really bad stuff off the table. Yeah, you, you do it. Right. So lots to chew on with this one, guys. Um, we appreciate you guys hanging in here and listening. We'll put links to the references that we talked about. Thank you guys for listening. We'll see you next time. Hi, guys. This is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at practicalquant. You can follow me on Twitter at, at JJ Carbono and follow Matt on Twitter at, at Cultish Creative. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube or leave a review or a comment. Also, if you have any ideas for topics you'd like us to cover in the future, please email us at excessreturnspod at gmail.com. We would like this to be a listener-driven podcast and would appreciate any suggestions. Thank you.